Good morning, good morning. Well, today, this week, we're celebrating veterans, and I would like for all the veterans in here to stand up. You all have a story. I'm going to tell my story, but you all have a story. We probably won't have time to hear all your stories, but let's stand up. Thank you. Thank you for your service. You know, our country is what it is because our veterans have served over the years from its beginning until now. And it's uh, never been easy. It always requires sacrifice. So thank you all for your sacrifice. Today I'm going to be sharing my story. Uh, and I'll have, have to be up front with you. I don't feel like a hero. I'm just a guy who does his job as best he can. And some days he gets it pretty good. And some days he's not so good, just like everybody else. But there is a great reward I have learned in my life of many years in just doing your job and doing it to the best of your ability and serving honorably. It's not easy to serve honorably. I'll tell you that. Uh, and so, thank you for being here. Thank you for your faith. Thank you for stepping out here today. Thank you for worshiping our Lord and Savior today. It makes me feel good to be here with you. I'll tell you that. Well, I'm going to tell you my story. And I got a lot of slides, and we'll kind of go through them here as we go. But I grew up on a farm in North Georgia between Athens and Commerce, Georgia. And I always wanted to be a pilot. Now, I always wanted to play f football because I had my, uh, my mother's brother played football at Georgia in 1928-29. His two sons played in the early 50s, 50-51. And I used to go down and watch them practice on Ag Hill because I lived 10 miles from the University of Georgia. And I had it in my mindset. I played quarterback in high school, and I was, thought I was pretty good. And I was going to play the quarterback for the University of Georgia and be a fighter pilot. Well, my senior year in high school, I only weighed 155, and I wasn't the fastest guy on the team. <laughs> so I kind of gave that one up. I saw that one wasn't going to happen. But I did go to the University of Georgia. And then I got into Air Force ROTC. Now, I was probably one of the worst students that's ever graduated from the University of Georgia in four years. But I made it through, and what I was really into was Air Force ROTC, and I was a distinguished graduate out of that. So you put your mind into what it is that you're interested in, and at that point, that's where I was. So three days after I finished my last class at Georgia, I went to Valdosta, Georgia, and went to flight school at Moody Air Force Base down in Georgia. Fifty-three weeks later, I got my wings on assignment that said F-4 Phantom Pipeline Southeast Asia. Now, that's the F-4 Phantom. This is August 1966. I'm still 22 at that point, but I'm almost 23. And then I head out to California. And this is the high desert between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Now, it's about two or 300 miles south of where Top Gun was filmed and where the Navy does their Top Gun training. But I actually took this picture with an Instamatic camera. It had just come out. 
Some of y'all remember the Instamatic. It was the first little small camera, and it had a capsule with a film inside. You could get 12 or 20 or so uh, shots, and it was small enough. I could put it in my flight suit pocket, go fly, and that day I pulled away from the four-ship, took that picture so I could have a memory for a lifetime of how great I was living. We did everything they did in Top Gun, plus the air-to-ground, which they did in Top Gun Maverick, the second one. We did all that stuff. We even went down to San Diego and fought with air-to-air sometimes with the Navy. So here I was getting to do all this stuff I'd always wanted to do, but the assignment said Air Force Phantom Pipeline Southeast Asia. The war in 66, 67 was building up, and so as quick as we got trained, we were headed to the war, and that's exactly what happened. So the next slide shows you that me there in Da Nang Air Base in northern part of South Vietnam in 1967. Now, we all heroes, you know, we got to have these hero shots to send back to our families. The guy, married guys sent them back to their wives, and us bachelors, we sent them to all our girlfriends because we wanted them to be thinking about us because we're coming back in a few months, maybe eight or ten months, we'll be back. We had to get 100 missions over the north or spend a year there in Vietnam flying to go home. If you got 100 missions over north Vietnam, you got to go home early, which was running about nine or ten months for my base at that time to get 100 missions. Well, that's what I was doing. But on my 53rd mission over the north, we flew close air support in the south for the Marines and the Army, and we flew some interdiction, bombing out bridges and uh, roads in, in Laos because they would come down and Ho Chi Minh Trail and go swing around and go down the, the uh, west side of uh, Vietnam and come back in further south down there, okay? So we'd fly some missions, interdiction missions in Laos. But on my 53rd mission over the north, my airplane blew up over enemy territory. They were shooting at us like crazy. Right after the bombs came off, we got hit, blew up into several pieces. Very unusual. I knew that I had to eject because if I stayed in the airplane more than about three or four seconds, it'd be smashed in the ground I'd be dead. So we were very well trained. And the military does a good, great job of training you, especially when you operate in an area where there's high risk. I pulled the handle, the canopy blew. There were two of us in the airplane. I went out first. The other guy went out second. We jumped out, and we're coming down the parachute, and now picture this. The guys on the ground are shooting at our wingman. Bullets are going by. Tracers are going by, and I'm just thinking about, okay, how am I going to evade capture? My training was right there. I was totally focused. I did my parachute landing fall exactly as we were trained. I hit all five points. I jumped down into an old uh, bomb crater and pulled out my radio. and It's on guard frequency so everybody can hear it. I pulled out my radio and I said, I'm 200 meters north of the river. Start strafing at 300 feet. I'm headed south. At a reunion, fighter pilot reunion after the war, my wingman said, hey, I heard your call but decided not to come strafing and shooting because I figured I couldn't, I might hit you. They were too close. And I said, they're very wise because they captured me within 90 seconds. They tied me up, stripped me of all my clothes, gave me my flight suit back and tied me up, hands, and uh, they didn't tie my feet at that point. 
because they moved me to another place and to another place and another place. And one time they took me, I was been blindfolded, and I could look down and I could see the ground right in front of me. And they put, took me out back of this little uh, hamlet, and there was rice paddies between it and another one way over there. And I couldn't see all that very well, but I could just see down the ground. And in Korean War movies and history I knew, they took people out in the back of the hamlet and shot them. And so I looked down and I see this ditch. And I thought, this is the end. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to let them shoot me in the back. They're going to have to look me in the eye when they shoot me. And I spun around. And the guy raised, and I could tilt my head back, and I could see him, and he, and he raised his rod. And, the, and the, his guards on either side grabbed me and spun me back around. And I turned back around again, and my, this time they're going crazy, cussing and screaming in Vietnamese, I'm sure. And they spun me back around, and one of them kicked me in the behind, and I was about to fall in that ditch, and I just flat foot jumped over the ditch, and then they jumped over and started giggling and laughing. And all they wanted me to do was jump over the ditch and go on to the next village. <laughs> that was pretty exciting. <laughs> so I just hung on. You know, the first hour or so, I was just complete trauma after I was captured. I was calm and everything until I was captured. But then I was just totally in trauma, terrified, not knowing what's going to happen and all that. And then, minute by minute, hour by hour, I realized that God was in control. I just had to do my duty, do the best I could, and let God take care of me. Because my faith, growing up in that little Baptist church, and right off Highway 106 between Athens and Commerce, between Athens and Isla, Georgia, I grew up knowing the Lord, reading the Bible, memorizing Bible verses, and now, all of a sudden, it's being put to the test. But I wasn't the only one. Every POW that I got to know, many over the years, and still now we got to pretty much know all of them, some of the ones we didn't room with, we've gotten to know in our reunions over the years. And every one of them talk about how they turned to the Lord immediately after capture. And some of them, one guy tells me, he said, hey, I'm coming down to my parachute over in my territory, and I look up and I started praying, Lord, I need, I'm turning to you. I hadn't, I'm sorry, I haven't been, I haven't been in your presence. I haven't been turning to you. So faith was going to be very important for all of us as we went along. So here we go, we're rolling now. That's my airplane flying uh, that's North Vietnam. I was actually shot down uh, about five miles north of there where that you see the, and about two miles from the coast where that was. This is the Hanoi Hilton. It's a prison camp. It was a French, built by the French in the 1890s. It's a Bastille prison. The walls are 14 feet high, about five feet thick. No one ever escaped from that prison. There are guard towers at all the corners. It occupies that entire block down there, and, and it was still there. Uh, part of it is still there. The bottom half was torn down. The bottom half of it was torn down maybe 15 or 20 years ago, and they built two high-rise buildings down there. But the top half is still there. My wife and I went back in 2014 and uh, went into the prison. 
And uh, I had no problem with it except for the propaganda in their museum that oh, told how wonderful we were treated. And maybe compared to the French, we were. What the French did to them, maybe we were, but we weren't treated wonderful. So that's the Hanoi Hilton. You have to name things. Little Vegas complex in the top left is where the cell blocks that most of the American prisoners were in. The bottom half was Vietnamese prisoners. It was a city jail for them. And some of them were political prisoners. Some of them were just jail prisoners. Some of them might have been POWs. I don't know. But there were several hundred of them in there. Well, this is a six and a half by seven foot cell where we went now, the first night I got there. Six and a half feet, okay, that's six inches wider than that, and seven feet is a foot deeper than that. And it's me and three other guys going to be locked up in there except when we're being interrogated or tortured for the next eight months. Can you imagine being locked up in a, in a, in a bathroom in a gas station for eight months with three other people? Well, we were glad to be alive, and we had to do what we had to do, so that's what we did. You had to stay positive. Being positive in those cells was very important. And so somehow we had to think that someday, someday we're going to get out of here. And at first I thought I can make it six months till the summer of 1968 because I got to December the 20th, November 22nd, the day I got to Hanoi. Took me two weeks to get there, during which we were bombed and strafed, and also the local villagers tried to kill us a couple of times. Fortunately, I had a good militia guy taking me north with his troops. They protected me. But staying positive is very important. You have to believe in what you're doing. You have to believe that you're going to succeed. You have to believe in yourself. And sometimes that's hard. And it was very hard when we got faced with torture and we weren't strong enough to make it through. But our teammates would say, hey, man, you did better than I did. <laughs> We had to accept life that we couldn't control and do the best we could with it and stay positive. Optimism, the research, the psychological research of the Vietnam POWs, there were about 590 of us total there, and about 400 of us were there more than five years. Okay? The rest of them came in at the end of the war. They're about a year or less. But the research shows that optimism believing that we were going to get through it was the number one thing that helped us survive and be resilient. Our group has had lower PTSD than combat veterans who fought in the South, even though we were locked up in POWs and tortured. And there more than five years, six years, six and a half, seven, seven and a half, eight years. I got cellmates that were there eight years. So whenever I was feeling like things were hard, I look over here and this guy got there two years before I did and been through a lot more torture than I've ever been through. And he's married and got two kids and one child born after he was captured. And I don't have it very hard at all compared to him. So that optimism, that positive mindset was so important. Okay, now in our cell, we had four guys and one of them was a lieutenant colonel and he started collaborating with the enemy. Now, our goal was to live by the code of conduct. There's six articles that basically says you'll be loyal to your country, you won't 
collaborate with the enemy, you'll be loyal to your teammates, that sort of thing. This guy was collaborating, giving them information, trying to be nice to them because he did not want to be tortured. He did not want to be whatever. He just changed his mind about the war. And all of a sudden, he was with the anti-war people. And here's a guy who's a lieutenant colonel in the military. And so one day when he's out of the cell, Captain Fisher, who's the next ranking guy, there are two lieutenants, a captain and a lieutenant colonel in that cell. Captain Fisher said, guys, I'm the next ranking guy in the cell, and I believe I should take command and give him an order to cease collaborating with the enemy. Would you follow me? We said, absolutely, that's the right thing to do. So Captain Fisher, shown here, being the New York State wrestling champion in high school and having wrestled in college was a tough hombre. <laughs> he was tough. And he was very wise, um, settled, just an incredible leader. He was going to be my leader from that day for the next three years. He was a role model for me. And in most every area, I wanted to be more like him. There were a few areas I looked at and I said, nah, probably not. I'm going to do that differently. I'm different from him. But he was such a great role model and such a great leader. And the guy came back to the cell. He got in his face and said, I'm relieving you of command. I'm giving you a direct order to follow the code of conduct. And if not, I will make sure you're court-martialed when we go home. And the guy said, well, you know, this is not a declared war and the code of conduct doesn't apply and it's basically every man for himself. Well, you know, I didn't know whether, I wanted to hit him and I wanted to cry at the same time because I was so disappointed. We had to live with him for just a few more months and then we split off and I didn't see him again. Never saw him again. But I did testify, uh, give a, uh, what, I don't know what lawyers interview you, a, a, not a dossier, but anyway. Yeah. When he tried, when we put, we took out a full-page ad in the Orange County Register when he tried to run for county commissioner, and said, "You don't want this guy." 120 of us signed a, a full-page ad in the paper, said, "You don't want this guy. He collaborated with the enemy. He tried to sue us. USAA defended us, and about three or four of us who had lived with him gave testimony, and they dropped the case." Courage, commitment was so important. And Captain Fisher certainly set the example for me. Well, he was a great guy. By the way, he's 86. He's the golf champion, the senior champion in his course, uh, club down in Houston, Texas. He plays three times a week. He's like a 9 or 10 handicap now. Incredible guy. Well, a few years ago, we developed the honor code. Now, in the POW camp, we had the, the uh, soldier's code of conduct. But we developed the honor code, and you can go to our website and download this for free. But I look at it all the time because if you're not working to keep yourself on track to be honorable, I promise you it's easy to get off. And once you slide off, then it's easy to get off more. I worked in a Christian ministry where a lady was a wonderful Christian lady embezzled money. At the same time, another person in the city of Gainesville embezzled money from the city. At the same time, students, honors students from Rabin County 
cheated on the test. At the same time, teachers in Atlanta, Georgia, cheated, cheated on the students' test. At the same time, people from the government were cheating and spending our money, our tax money, in Las Vegas. We're all one step away from being crooks. And if you don't believe that, you're in risk. So that's why we look at the honor code and think about how can I treat others with respect? How can I tell the truth? How can I be responsible and do my duty? Because I promise you, we're all one step away. I am every April 15th. I tell my CPA to get me as close to that line as he can without going over it because I don't want to pay a cent more taxes than I have. And as a business person, I have to make a decision every day. Is this a legitimate business expense or is this for my pleasure? Every day, every week, maybe, not every day. So guard your character. We've certainly worked for that. Psalm 1, so we had, some, we had memorized that. One guy in our group had memorized the first psalm, so we all memorized it. But it talks about how honor brings blessings. It's so important. The psalms, so many of them, are so important. Hebrews 12, 11 talks about the duty and discipline. The importance of it. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. We found that out. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That was so true. The POWs, we have been trained to follow the code of conduct and to be loyal to our country and our teammates, and we got punished. We got tortured for it. But we endured it. And there were guys that were tougher than me, and there was only a few that wasn't tougher, <laughs> that wasn't tougher than me. One of my cellmates would look over at me a lot of days and say, Lee, pain purifies. <laughs> There's a great quote from uh, Toykin in Return of the King from Lord of the King. There's, There's no glory without suffering. Life is that way. We are going to suffer. But when we know the Lord and we turn to him and depend on him, we can endure that suffering. We're all suffering. Everybody in here has situations where you're going through a tough time or somebody in your family is. We all have that. We just got to believe and we got to keep on track to be the person that the Lord wants us to be. And that's the battle for all of us. Well, I... Uh, we endured, and that made a big difference. We confronted our doubts and fears. I was in that cell, and because I was young and sneaky, I became the lead communicator in my cell because I we could really get away with it pretty well. And so I was communicating from this cell over to this cell with a guy who moved in, and he was a senior-ranking officer in the camps at that time. He had been there two years, over two years when I got there, and he had fought in the Korean War and been an ace, a great hero. He'd been on the cover of Time magazine because he was shot down and rescued in April 1965. And then in September 65, he was shot down and captured. But he had been on the cover. Just in, he was the most famous fighter pilot in the Air Force. And now he's a POW. He's been there two years when I get there. 
But he's also a wonderful Christian guy. His faith was so strong. He set an example for us. He had been through the ropes torture, the pretzel. They would tie your, tie your hands at wrist and then get you on the floor and tie a rope around one elbow and then they would stomp on your other elbow and cinch it up and cinch it up and cinch it up until your elbows touch. Okay, that's not a natural thing. That tears up in here. It tears it, okay? And then one guy's behind pushing that torn over him, and one guy's in front pushing his head down, and it was just screaming. They would put a rag in your mouth to keep you from screaming so loud. And Roger had been through this a couple of times. He'd been beaten. He'd been in solitary confinement for 300 days in a totally dark room with no light. He said, I was going crazy. But he bounced back, and he could smile. And here's what he said. I'm in charge, and here's what I want you to do. Take torture. Be a good American. Take torture. Resist the enemy up to the point of permanent physical or mental damage, and then no more. Go ahead and give in. Give as little as possible, and bounce back, because they're going to come after you again. Stay united through communication. Pray every day. Go home proud. Return with honor. That was so powerful. That was, our, that was the whole scope of our culture, was that right there. And it was going to be a battle. We also had, so the, the, the senior ranking officers would get pulled out and out of communication for a while. So we had some others. James Bond Stockdale, MOH, Medal of Honor for his cor- courageous performance as a POW and as a leader up there. And then Commander Jeremiah Denton, who was tortured to say the bombing policy was wrong. And when they put him in front of the uh, press, in the press interview, in front of the cameras, and they asked him, the Japanese reporter said, what do you think about your country's policy on the bombing? And Denton said, well, whatever. I've been here a long time, and I don't know what my country's policy is on anything anymore, but whatever it is, I supported 110%. They freaked out, but they didn't want to drag him out and be embarrassed, so they let him answer a few more questions, during which time he did this in front of all those bright lights. Morse code, blinking, torture, T-O-R-T-U-R-E. He blinked it twice. And you can type into your browser today, Denton blinks torture, and see that original video. I mean, they would have probably killed him if they'd known what he was doing. They didn't know. But they took him out and tortured him because he didn't give the right answer to the, in the press interview. Okay? That's the kind of guys we had leading us up there and setting an example. I, I, uh, after a few, back in the 80s, I worked in a prison ministry. I didn't work. I volunteered for my church. And went to a prison ministry at the Maxwell Federal Prison in Montgomery. And we had a prison ministry to the men there, and we'd started off every Sunday with Matthew 11, 28 through 30. But we were weak and weary and burdened. And it made a difference to turn to the Lord. He was our soul and S-O-L-E and S-O-U-L. Uh, provider there 
in so many ways. So these three guys were great leaders for us. And what was so good about them was they were both very confident and very humble. They got tortured the most. They spent more than four years in solitary confinement. And yet they kept bouncing back, and they were always humble. They owned everything that happened to them. They did not measure up to what they believed they should and wanted to be, okay? And this was a great thing about the POW world. When you live with people like that, you're locked up in the cell with them 24 hours a day, you can't pretend. There can be no false side of you. Every part of you gets seen by others, and they have to accept you. And all of a sudden, it's so much easier to be authentic, to be both confident and humble, to be vulnerable, to admit it when you mess up. You don't have to pretend. I mean, our politicians today, they, take, they mess up and they, <laughs> they can cover it up because I might not get reelected if they knew that. These guys were so courageous. They set such a great example. We felt their love and we received it. They loved us. Love was an important piece up there for us. We had a tap code. One guy brought it in, Colonel Smitty Harris, Captain Smitty Harris then. I lived with him for two years. He was there more than eight years. He had two children and his wife was six months pregnant when he was captured. He comes home eight years later. Their story, we have their story in our new book, which I'll mention later. We tapped on those walls to communicate. Stay connected with others. Do not let people get isolated. Whether it's a family member or somebody at work, when they're isolated and you know they're struggling, go to them and just be there. Let them know you care about them. Collaborate. Cover them. Cover meaning support. Encourage them. Let them know they're valuable, they're important. It's so important. Courage always makes a difference. And uh, while we were there in POW camp, the ladies had been told, the wives, families, had been told to keep quiet, not to talk to the press about their husbands, sons being POWs. And after a couple of years, they got tired of it. And one of them, led by James Bond's lady, James Bond Stockdale, that is, here's the rest of the story. You see her sitting there, and see President Nixon in the White House is listening to her. And she's saying, you told us, not you, but the Defense Department before you came in, because he had just come in as president, told us to be quiet. And that's not working. And we're going to, she didn't say this, but basically, we're going to make a lot of noise. And the lady on the right there, Phyllis Galante, her husband was a POW cellmate of mine. He was there six years. Very shy lady. She became the president of the League of Wives of the state of Virginia and got 750,000 letters written, and had, she went to Paris and confronted the communists at the Paris Peace Talks about our treatment. This spread across our country and across the world, and it put so much pressure on them. We had people, my parents, my mother was out speaking, talking about putting pressure on the communists to identify who's dead and who's alive up there and to treat us humanely and let us write home and let us have a health uh, Red Cross packages. There were more than 1,000 people wearing a bracelet with my name on it 
I didn't, we didn't know any of this was going on, by the way. But these women stood up. This is in the late 60s and early 70s. They stood up and took on the U.S. government and changed the policy. And they took on the communist government. This is my hometown. All these people praying for me, thinking about me every day, wearing that bracelet. Unreal. Well, back in Hanoi, there was a raid on one of the camps, and we got to go back to Hanoi to the Hilton, and uh, they put us where the Vietnamese had been in these big cells. I was in building three, room three, we called it. But about 1,800 square feet, no partitions, just an open cell. With a, We slept on a concrete slab floor about 20 inches off the ground. 52 guys for the next two years. Can you imagine being locked in a cell with 52 people for two years? Now, this torture had stopped. We started having classes. We had Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday classes. And whoever was the best at Spanish taught Spanish. <laughs> whoever was the best at French taught French. But our healthy relationships, you, you had to be locked up. You had to get along. And we all had the same mission. We all had the same suffering. And we were very close. In that cell, I was in that cell actually about 18 months with 52 guys. And only twice had somebody ever raised their voice at another person, and both times they apologized before we went to bed that night. Can you imagine that? That relationship, learning to live together like that, has really given us great marriages, by the way. <laughs> well, we bounced back and bounced back. We were resilient. This is March 14, 1973. My group is coming home. The war's ended. That's John McCain. He was captured 11 days before me. That's me. That's my buddy Ken Fisher I was talking about. This guy, he's 93, going on 94, Tom Kirk right there. Amazing how resilient our guys were. We're on the flight on the 141 flying from Hanoi to Clark Air Base, the Philippines, where they had the largest military hospital in Asia. And we went back, that's Ken, that's me, that's John McCain, headed back. This is when we landed, that day they, the day they released us, they gave us some clothes to wear. We had a pair of slacks and a shirt and a belt and a little jacket and a pair of shoes and socks. We hadn't had any shoes and socks in five, six, seven years. I hadn't five and a half years. We had a pair of rubber tire sandals and black pajamas or striped pajamas. And so now, you see, I'm looking. Well, I hadn't seen a woman in five and a half years. I'm a young, single guy, and uh, there's all these people out there to meet us, and I'm looking, wow, look at those gals. And we went over, and they hugged us. It was amazing. So we spent two days in the hospital. We got a physical, a uniform, a haircut, and a shave, and uh, we refueled in Hawaii on the way home in the middle of the night, met by another group. See, we were loved when we got off that airplane. We had no idea that people would be waiting for us. And then the same thing happened in the middle of the night in, uh, in Hawaii. And then we come back to Maxwell Air Force Base, and my family's there, and uh, there was a big crowd there, of course, too, greeting us. Mom and Dad, they're the real heroes. They didn't know what was happening to me. I knew they were probably doing okay. 
I did get to write a letter, a six-line letter, at two years, and they didn't get it until two and a half because they held on to it for six months before they mailed it. And I got my first letter at two and a half years. And I got one about every two or three months. They were the real heroes. We were at dinner that night. Air Force said, you want to go back to work? Fine. I said, fine. They said, yeah. I said, yep. And I went back and got requalified for flying. Had a great flying career for the next few years. People said, how would you do it? We had faith. You must believe. We had faith in ourselves. We believed in our group and our teammates, faith in our families, faith in our country. Faith in God was so important up there. We believed that we could do it, that we could return with honor. You know, we're going to come scratched up and dented, but return with honor. There's a great uh, quote. I read a lot of David Benner's book. This is Surrender to Love. He's talking about God's love. But he said, no one can change until they first accept themselves as they are. Self-deceptions and an absence of real vulnerability block any meaningful transformation. So I had a guy tell me once, he said, you know, there's a part of you you don't own. And, nah, nah. But he was right. So I'd say get to know yourself and deal with those parts that you don't want to own. And it makes you healthier, and it makes you more vulnerable and more authentic and more able to love others in a, such a great way. Believe God's grace showered down on us, trusted him. We received his love. We tried to give love. Giving lo loving others is so important, whether you're a leader, a parent, a teammate, a sibling, Every person wants to be cared about. You know, the research shows that a, nine, a six- to nine-month-old baby, this is the functional MRIs of the brain, a six- to nine-month-old baby, when smiled at and cuddled, their prefrontal cortex develops in a healthy way. If they don't get that, that prefrontal cortex doesn't develop. And the older you get before you get really unconditional love, the less likely your brain is going to work the way it needs to. So caring for people, we have a, a, a general chief of staff of the Air Force now, the first black chief of staff we've ever had. And I've gotten to know him. I've heard him speak a couple of times. I've been in his office recently. And I went in and I told him, I said, when you retire, you're going to get into leadership, right? <laughs> he said, probably so. And I said, great. I said, I'm, you are so vulnerable about who you are. He's an extreme introvert. But I heard him on a podcast, and he said, when I walk out of the hall in the Pentagon and I pass somebody in the hall, when I tell myself when I walk out of my office and you meet somebody in the hall, you better smile and say good morning. He said, that's not natural for me, an introvert. But I do it. And he's exactly right, because when he smiles at people and says good morning, He's saying, you're important. I care about you. That's what we all need to be doing. Is we need to be looking for ways that we can let others know they're important, they're valued. And when they do, they become healthier. They believe in themselves more, and they become healthier. So think about how we can love others. And I'll finish up real quick by telling you about my new book that's coming out next year. It'll be out in the spring. Captured by Love, Inspiring True Romance Stories from Vietnam POWs. 
at the, over the years at all these POW reunions, I kept hearing all these romance stories, and I said, Hollywood couldn't write a script like that. Somebody needs to write a book, and nobody did, so I finally decided, and I hired a romance writer to help me, Greg Godek. Anyway, uh, the amazing thing is that faith played such a powerful role in these love stories, so I think you'll really enjoy the book. So I was single. I dated a lot of girls when I came home. And I just didn't find the right one. And all of a sudden, I came back to Valdosta as an instructor pilot. And I met Mary, and I thought, hmm, I think she's the right one. And we dated, and we both t ended up telling folks back home, hey, I think I met the right one. And we got married, and we're about to hit 48 years of marriage and uh, hanging in there. <laughs> Our story is the last one in the book. I put it last. Uh, but it tells of how Lee was a slow learner <laughs> and being a good husband. I mean, I was a, we always had a great marriage, but I was a slow learner. So uh, check it out, and you'll see. I think the most important thing that I can say to you today is that the, the suffering that we did enabled us to become more authentic, uh, to care about others in a way that we had never cared about, and to be accepting of others, to be teammates and buddies in ways that we hadn't. And that really carried over into our, into our marriages, and that's one of the key lessons out of that, uh, those, all those stories. And I didn't realize that when I started writing a book. I just wanted to write, have a romantic thing. But it was our ability to be honest and accept who we are and accept others for who they are. That has made us happy and successful and we still stay together and we're outliving our peers who weren't POWs. Isn't that amazing? And I think it's just because we, we're more open to love and we receive it and try to give it more easily and I don't know, but I think that's it. So I kind of end up with that and uh, is there any other slide here? Oh, books. Uh, we had books to sell and uh, the Leading with Honor and uh, Engage with Honor books. And, uh, but we sold out. But you can go online and get them. And so we do have some card bookmarks out there, courage cards out there. On our website, we have the honor code. You can download it. We have so much free stuff on the website. So just go there and uh, pick it up. I do a monthly video coaching and write a monthly blog. It's all free. Just help yourself. There are the two books I was talking about. So uh, check them out if you're interested. And I'll be out there to visit with you if I can. So, and the pastor here, the reason I sold, we sold out of books, he got up and said the books, you got to have them, and away they went, Pastor. I know, it's, it's so the first much. time they've ever listened to me. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I do want to encourage you seriously to go online. If, if, if you want to give someone a gift for Christmas, I'm telling you, Leading with Honor is one of the greatest reads you will ever have. And if you lead anything in this life, get this book. I promise you it will bless you. Uh, Colonel, it's been one of the greatest honors, and I am so grateful that you have shared your morning, your story, your testimony with us here. Tell, tell Lieutenant Colonel, tell him how wonderful it is to be here. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you, friend. Thank you. Thank you so much Thank you. for having me. Thank you. Thank you.
Y'all stay standing for a minute. I think, uh, I think Zach has got a little something for us. Seemed like the appropriate way for us to end this moment before we go home. So, Zach. Y'all sing it like you mean it. send you out with. What do you say? You want to do it? Let's do it. You got to go. Go ahead. It's okay, but I promise you, it's time to kick (laughs) this into season. I've been waiting to do this for a year. Come on, kick it. All right, here we go. Y'all don't play around now. It is the official launch of the Christmas season. It's that time of year. We got a better Christmas song to sing and to launch it off. Chuck is excited. Very excited. Will you sing with us, O come, all ye faithful? O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come, O come, to Oh,
God bless you guys. We love you. Go in peace.